Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. Hello and welcome to the FIRST podcast. I'm your host, Martin McKay. With me is Chris John Riley, and we are at the first day of the FIRST conference, and that's way too many firsts. Uh, I would like to introduce our guest. First, we have their majesty, Jean Spafford, also a professor, also a few other things. And then we have the other Dr. Spafford, Patty, and we're here to talk to you. I'm going to hand the mic over to Chris so he can try and mispronounce all of the words that come next. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. So we're here to talk to to Spaff today about uh, his presentation this morning, sliding down the slippery analogy slope and landing in clarity, which I hope I got right. You did. Perfect. So your talk this morning, wonderful. A lot of great analogies, ironically, that we use in cybersecurity every day. For people who didn't make the session, can you give like a quick 30-second synopsis on what you were talking about? Sure. One of the things that's come up recently and and was part of uh, the uh, the research into the book that we just produced is communication is extremely important. And those of us who work in technology, particularly those who work in incident response and public-facing roles, need to be sure that they're clear in what they're saying. And too often we use analogies to describe things in computing because they're complex, and that actually muddies the comprehension of the people who need to understand those concepts. So one of the things you came back to uh, a couple of times in your talk was talking about computer viruses and how we've used that as an analogy for malicious programs taking over computers. And people have misunderstood that and taken what they think the analogy means and maybe taken that a step too far. You even gave an example of how people were asking you during the Morris worm outbreak whether or not people might be affected by this. Yes. Uh, that's one of the dangers of using terms that are already understood in a different context for people. So uh, talking about early antivirus programs as vaccines was another example of this. Talking about worms, talking about viruses. We also at one point referred to some of the software as uh, bacteria or rabbits. Um, And those terms didn't really bring clarity at all. They actually added to confusion. Well, and a lot of your presentation is based on your book, and I'm going to let you say the whole title of it because Chris will mess it up if I have him do it. (laughs) Um, So we had a book that came out in uh, February, a co-author, called Cybersecurity Myths and Misconceptions, and my co-authors, Lee Metcalf and Josiah Dykstra, and uh, Patty did the illustrations. The book is really directed to the fact that cybersecurity as an area is people-centric. And too much of what's been done has been done by technologists. And they've defined the terms. They've used the words. They're the ones who design the systems without really considering the end-user population that has to contend with what we've designed and what we're telling them. And that's where we run into problems because people misunderstand, they develop myths, 
uh, misunderstandings. And as a result, they make poor choices. So the talk today was intended to illustrate just a little bit of that problem set by saying we normally reason by, explain things by analogies, and sometimes they obscure more than they actually illustrate. Well, and you use a good word there, illustrate, Patty. You mentioned that um, you, I mean, we all we both know that you did the illustration, but you mentioned that there was a theme and a story behind this, the illustrations themselves in this conversation. Well, thank you. Yes, there were. These weren't just one-off little doodle drawings. So there's kind of three main ideas, and the way I draw and the way I work uh, folded very nicely into the book. So if you think about it, Forever and ever and ever, human beings have turned to animals to help explain their truths and their myths. And you can find animal myths and folklore in every culture. So that was the big impetus behind those drawings, with a very strong nod to female illustrators, my two favorites being Beatrix Potter of Peter Rabbit, mm -hmm. and she's worth reading up on, guys. And um, Maria Sabia Marian, who was a German... Um, entomologist way ahead of her time who gave us the first understanding of ecology through observing and drawing small things in nature um, and so it's sort of the things you don't notice that actually are making the world go round so that idea kind of folds into the book and then no small love of whimsy and vaudeville and the Muppets and Edward Gorey kind of scooting in at the end so as we were talking about myths, it just seemed a very natural fit to pull some of our, the way we think about our world forever uh, with animals in the illustrations. And it was fun to throw some Easter eggs in, like, you know, the, the tiger in the room with the blue ox, because the blue ox is the number one food source for tigers. <laughs> so um, I geeked out a lot doing the research to find what animals would work best. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I had a ball on this project. I don't know about you two, but I sometimes think that, that coyote would be my patron saint if uh, in, if the Indian cultures had a patron saint, but uh, they don't, so I guess I'll have to live without. But Jane, you, you also brought up a, a very important point, which is analogies are problematic across cultures. I mean, even within the U.S., there are some places where some of the analogies we're talking about just will not work. And, and when we try and go to someplace like Asia or to South America, they won't have the context for some of the conversations if we use the analogies we're used to. Yes. Uh, the one that I pointed out in particular is we've long in the U.S. talked about uh, cyber Pearl Harbor. And Pearl Harbor is means different things to, in different cultures and has a different cultural context. Uh, another one that a set of terms that have fallen somewhat out of favor, but we would talk about white hat, black hat, or white list, black list, um, and thankfully we're moving away a little bit from those terms. But in some uh, Asian cultures, the idea is black is actually good luck, and white is a symbol of death. And so even using those terms as a way of describing something uh, can... Uh, obscure the meaning that we're really trying to get across. So we have to be much more culturally aware as as well as uh, being more precise in how we speak. Well, and, and just the use of Cyber Pearl Harbor 
quite frankly, most of the big incidents we say that about are more like a cyber Titanic than a cyber Pearl Harbor, but that doesn't go well because it, it implies all of the engineering mistakes that were made and all of the human mistakes that were made that go into it. Yes, it, it, if you really try and unpack that, you get into all kinds of things having to do with um, uh, an attack that leads into into war, into, into global war. Well, very seldom. To date, we actually haven't seen anything that's led to that, and it would be unlikely at this point, I think, for a cyber incident to cause something on that scale. But it's also a, an issue of intention and surprise and treachery and a lot of other concepts that are layered in, depending on how deeply you go into it, that we don't necessarily intend. The basic idea behind talking about something like a cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber 9-11 is that it takes us by surprise and causes great damage. We could probably do a better job explaining that than using an analogy to a historical event. So one of the other things you mentioned was that we're 45 years in, to, to cybersecurity or security in general, and there's still no definition for cybersecurity. It seems like this is something that we should have handled by now. But you, you also mentioned that comparatively, we're still a pretty young industry, and having our ducks in a row at this point is maybe you know, something we shouldn't expect. I think this is a, uh, an area that really deserves some, few, some further research. Um, we have, as a problem, not that we don't have a definition of cybersecurity, it's that we have way too many, and they don't necessarily agree with each other. NIST alone has published three definitions, and that's the Institute of Standards and Technology in the U.S. that people turn to for this kind of formalism. The difficulty with this about not having a definition is it makes it difficult for us to talk about scope. It makes it difficult for us to talk about history, a big problem from an engineering point of view is we can't develop good metrics so that we can measure how well we're doing and whether or not we're improving. The history, and not that was in the talk, but if we look back, we used to talk about computer security, then computer and network security. Um, then we started talking about the issue of trust and trusted systems, and that led to the uh, Rainbow series of books. More recently, we've seen people in industry and otherwise uh, talk about risk and risk analysis and management. They don't talk about it well because they talk about eliminating risk, and that's not possible. But the whole notion of what it is that we're really trying to ensure has kept shifting because we don't have a good basis for a common shared set of definitions and measurements. There's the counter tide of marketing. I work for a security vendor. My marketing team wants to have a unique word they can use to describe it, even though that same word describes half a dozen already things already, and there's already a term for it in our vocabulary, but still they don't own it, so they want to change it. So there's a, there's a little bit of a counter to the clarity that you're hoping to bring in that aspect. There is, and the situation is complicated by the fact that there is a very strong commercial component to what's being done. We have many products and approaches in the marketplace that are being defined by vendors. The history of that's been around for, for quite some time. So for instance, we used to have intrusion detection, intrusion and misuse detection, uh, anomaly detection. 
people IPS, IPS yes a whole, whole slew of different names and and this was because of companies wanting to differentiate themselves but it adds to the confusion about what is really being offered or how do you compare products and services against each other so until we as a community I won't say take back, but really try to decide on some fundamental terms, it's going to be difficult for us going forward to be able to fully explain what we're doing and to be able to compare different approaches in any reliable way. To finish things off, I guess, where do we go from here? Right, we're, we're, we're too far down that road to say, please stop calling them computer viruses because it's not representative of what we want to communicate. Are we just saying that we need to be more cognitive about how we refer to things in the future or do you think there's an opportunity for us to refocus and change the conversation to try and bring more clarity i think it's possible if as a community we really cohesively work towards some common terms as i said we have made changes in talking about blacklists and whitelists for instance because that's pejorative in many contexts and we've we've learned how to uh, begin to change that um so it is possible to reclaim. There have been some attempts to reclaim uh, the term hacker, for instance, which has multiple definitions, or piracy uh, of, of software. What needs to be done is to come up with some terms that we can agree on and then start using it consistently. And this has been done in other domains that have developed uh, where I, I don't want to sort of misrepresent this, but the idea that the, the technology was almost developed by hobbyists to begin with. I think aviation is a wonderful example of this, where a lot of aviation was not commercial to begin with. It was hobbyist. And as it became part of the mainstream, there became a little bit more standardization of terms, of licensing, of training, of uh, regulation. And we're not yet there with cyber. We are beginning to see some growing trends on standardization, on uh, regulation. Uh, I think, for instance, the, uh, the National uh, Strategy for Cybersecurity that came out from the administration in the U.S. recently is a step forward. I think what NIST has been doing with trying to define and parameterize uh, the cybersecurity framework, the, the NICE framework for what people do, those are steps in this direction. But the community has to buy into those and use those. Um, and then and then somewhat flippantly, of course, everybody should buy a copy of the book. Definitely. Uh, definitely. Even, even if just for the pictures. Even if, yes. Well, yeah, well, start there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's a little in jest, but part of that, <laughs> not, the, not the pictures part of the buying the book, <laughs> but the, the fact that so many of us who work in this field the technology has been written by technicians for other technicians. It has not really been designed for the average person to be able to use. And as a result, we've built up mythos and, and terms and approaches that are not necessarily helpful for the average person or people in other professions to comprehend what it is that needs to be done. And part of our goal in producing the book was to get across the point that those of us working in the field need to be aware of this bias and need to get away from it because if we're going to succeed with better cybersecurity, it's not going to be 
us implementing security for everyone else, it's going to have to be all of us working together uh, for good cybersecurity. And that means we have to understand each other. So for those of you interested in reading the book, can you give some information about the book? Um, the, the book is published by uh, Pearson, uh, Addison Wesley, and it's called uh, Cyber uh, Security Myths and Misperceptions. Uh, it's available through all major bookstores, uh, both paper and electronic copies. And uh, again, I do want to give due credit to uh, my co-authors, who unfortunately uh, couldn't make it to this conference, um, Lee Metcalf, who, uh, Dr. Lee Metcalf, who works at the, the CERT, um, and uh, contributed a, a great deal on uh, uh, issues of malicious software and statistics and other kinds of work. And Dr. Josiah Dykstra, who works at the National Security Agency and the Cyber Security Solutions Center. And the three of us combined have about mm, 85, 90 years of experience in the field that we tried to bring into the book. So it's it's out there on all all your popular bookstores if you're interested in looking. Perfect. Perfect. I look forward to the the, uh, the audiobook version. I'm sure you'll we can facilitate you recording the audiobook version if you're interested. Thank you very much. So we've been sitting down with Eugene and Patty Spafford. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F-I-R-S-T-D-O-T-O-R-G. You can also find more information about FIRST and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.